Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yass, and today I've got a very special guest with me. My guest today is Jack Brazil. Morning, Jack. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for being with us good. this morning. Um, Jack, just for those that don't know or aren't familiar with yourself, uh, would you mind just giving us a bit of a backdrop as to what that is and what you do now? Yeah, so currently I'm the under-14s head coach at Volaranga, um, a club in Oslo, Norway. Um, so we are an elite Assyrian club, so that's the top level in Norway. And we are the only five-star academy currently within Norway. So we're the, we're the supposedly by the ratings, the top academy in Norway. You can dispute that um, if you wish. Um, there are some very, very, very good other academies in Norway. So we have a lot of competition right now. Um, but we were the ones that got a five-star classification, so that's something we're really proud of. Um, previously, I've worked quite a lot of countries all over the world. Um, my most recent role before this was in the Cayman Islands, where I worked with uh, the youth development scheme, and I was the head coach of a Cayman Premier League team. And then before that, university football and, and lots of other smaller, shorter experiences um, that around um, different parts of the world. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So, Jack, you know, just talking there about, you know, working in a range of countries, and I'm sure we'll get a, get a lot across that um, throughout the conversation, but I want to take you right back to the start of your coaching journey and kind of identify where that began and, you know, what caught your passion in terms of coaching. Yeah, it's, uh, I had, to, I was probably 14 when I started to realise that I wasn't of a level to become a professional footballer, but you, you still think something might happen. So you keep going to probably 16 and I did. Um, and it was a good, it was good. I never stopped playing until I was 18. I really enjoyed it. However, at 16, it became abundantly clear that my friends were getting signed or, or they were getting opportunities where I wasn't. And I was being kind of left behind a little bit. And I think I started to not fall out of love with Sunday mornings in the rain, but I didn't really, wasn't as interested in playing as much as I used to be. So I had an interest in football still. I wanted to be part of football. So I spoke to my dad um, and he put me on my level one at 16. And, and I did that at 16 years old. And then I started volunteering for my local club as like the assistant coach, the cone boy with the under 15s, just the grassroots team. Really enjoyed that. And it was a great experience for me. And then I started branching out a bit more, did my level two, um, started working in one of my local semi-pro clubs, sort of under 19 team. And then it started to grow from there. And the longer it went on, the more I realised I enjoyed coaching more than playing. What was it about coaching in particular that you, you started, really started to enjoy? Obviously, you know, going from a player, kind of maybe not enjoying it as much as a player, but then picking up coaching. And obviously, I think that's a massive step for you in terms of your dad, obviously, taking your, getting you onto your level one. Um, and I'm sure yeah. we'll more around what that journey's looked like from then till now. But um, yeah, what was it about the coaching part that you really enjoyed straight away? It was the interaction with lots of people. It was the challenge of how one person is completely different to another, but trying to get the best out of them within a team context. Um, I think it was watching the game in a different lens. It was something completely fresh and new to me because I never had any experience mm. with it. And there was just, I think, I think you have that curve where you only know so much. And then when you get to a point where you know so much, you go, wow, I actually don't know anything. And I kept, every, in the first sort of year and a half, two years, I kept having that moment of, I'm quite good at, oh no, I'm not. I'm quite, I'm not, I'm not very good at this at all. Mm. And I kept having those moments and it just, the rabbit hole went deeper and deeper and deeper and I kept diving and finding new paths and new alleyways for new information. And it almost became an obsession. I remember working 
on a completely ta- a complete tangent here, I remember working as a waiter and uh, I had my my order form where I'd write down all the order books and things like that for what the what the uh, people at the table wanted when I was waiting at the table. And at the bottom of the thing would be the exercises that I was drawing while I was working and drawing up and writing up, okay, they want one steak, one chicken fillet, they want this. There'd be an exercise that I was drawing up in my head at the bottom of the, of the order tab. And it just became an obsession in that regard. And my mind started really growing into, wow, this is cool. There's so much more to know. 100%. You know, just, just on that then, you know, you talked there about so much more to know. What did you take up from your level one then? Level one, I think, was the idea of that it was important to have structure in what you do. You can't just turn up to something and, and just put an exercise on. You have to have an idea of well, what's your aim at the end of the exercise? Why are you trying to do this? What's the purpose of it? And then also a little bit of, of the environment. What are you trying to create? Who are you trying to be? And I think they didn't really give clear ideas, mm. but, but that was probably the beauty of the course in that it gave you a little things to go and examine and, and think deeper on so it was you know I was quite big as I think most coaches are when they start that winning is really important and they want to win all the time and then they started asking me about my actions and the way I was coaching the way I was talking and I was like yeah I want to play like this and, and I want to play like this I want to play like Barcelona that's my favourite team so well what, who are you coaching Jack are they the bottom of the division three in the Saturday league in Nottingham <laughs> right so realistically Jack have you got Iniesta in your team so can you play like that yeah and then they start bringing you down the path of well I really want to develop the players can I win like that or can I make them better and it was just little ideas that were that were spawned in those moments um so I think that was what the level one did it it didn't give me much in terms of this is how you do things but it gave me a lot in terms of go and find out how to do things sure and just kind of touching on something else you mentioned there, obviously looking at it from a different lens when you now stepped into it as a coach. Did you, I mean, for myself, you know, I kind of stopped playing at 16, kind of just, you know, in some ways just came away from the game a little bit um, and then did and ended up doing my level one about two and a half years later. So when I was about just off, just after I turned 18, really. <clears throat> and I hadn't played between that time, but then I started playing again after not playing for two years once I started coaching and whatnot. And actually found I've actually developed as a player as well. Did you did you find that as well? Did you because you started to think about things differently? Yeah, no, and that, that was something that was really good for me playing was I was thinking about where the gaps were, where the places were that I could go, if the opposition were late, if there was a defender, I was a striker at the point. If he was late stepping up, I'd go and stand on the back of the other centre back so I could exploit the offside a little bit. I'd have little ideas based on that. Um I think and from my playing experience, if I take it all the way back, one of my main playing experiences where I learned to do something completely new was when I went to the Cayman Islands. We had the, the Premier League team and then we had a Division One team from the same club that would be our under 21s. And we could have like three overage players. So they signed me up and I was playing midfield and I thought I was quite decent. Um, but I was one of the only white European players in the team. The rest were black, Afro-Caribbean, Jamaican, Jamaican, so quick, so quick. And I learned a completely different way of playing then. They know me as Mr. 70% because that was all I did all the time running. Whereas then the guy next to me would go 100 miles an hour, disappear, but then he'd have to walk for the next 35, 40 seconds because that was his genetic makeup. Mm. So then I had to learn on top of, I had to learn to be really intelligent with my movement and the way I received the ball because I could be under pressure really quickly based on the speed of the players that I was playing against and the, and the sort of genetic capabilities they have. And very generic, but it was the way the league looked a little mm. bit. And I looked very odd in it because I would just run at 70% the whole game in midfield. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, it's interesting, obviously, because like there is different, uh, different differences in terms of cultural, you know, um, genetically, the people up here want to do different compositions and how, how that, I guess they play themselves out in that respect. I'm just trying to now kind of paint a bigger picture. Now. So you're 16, stepping into the coaching world. Um, how old are you now? I'm 27 now. 27, so 11 years on. Uh, you've, mm. you know, you've been around the world. Where did that begin? How did that begin? And how have you got to where you got to now? Uh, so at 19, I went to university. Um, started coaching there at the university level. That was really cool, actually, because it was so immersive. Everyone was in the same environment in that we were all students. So 
majority didn't have second jobs or if they did have second jobs or evening jobs so we had a lot of time in the mornings to work out together so we were doing a lot of strength sessions in the morning and, and we were training in the evening so we made a really good program and that was something that almost gave me a blank canvas to do what the hell I wanted so I learned and made a lot of mistakes and I had to manage my peers and and it was, it was really good experience for me to do that um, but then during my breaks I found them really long there were like five five months at times four or five months in between university from finishing your final exam and starting again or it felt like long to me anyway so I, I started looking for opportunities um, at the end of my first year and I was fortunate enough to be offered an opportunity in Mongolia um, so I went and coached there for, for three months in the Premier League um, that was a really good experience for me really challenging to coach because none of the players really spoke that much English there was two fluent um, uh, fluent English people that were involved in the club the chairman and then one who's like a player coach so I had some support in that regard to translate for me but that was a really good challenge and I kind of gave me the bug um, to do it again because if I can do it in that harsher tougher environment where I was very alone I can I can probably do it in a lot of places so when it came to the next summer um, I took my university team to the Turks and Caicos Islands that's a small set of Caribbean islands uh, below Bah the Bahamas so absolute heaven um, idyllic area but also a fantastic national football academy two full-size pitches a beach soccer pitch um, and lots of national football teams. So we took a university team out there, played games against the local teams. And I was coaching the university team at that time. And then on top of that, I was um, coaching all the different age groups at night and then coordinating all of my players from the university team to coach them as well. So we had like a coach development trip and we were, you know, I, was, I was in charge of the, overseeing them, overseeing the playing side, overseeing the coaching structure within the, the national academy. Um, that we were delivering and it was wow a really good uh, experience for us guys over there for the, the three and a bit weeks we were there and then I took a trip um, to Gibraltar and coached a, a, a team there in their national league and we I went through the pre-season with them before I went back to my university after that um, I, after I finished my university that was, that was between my um, second and third year and then after the end of my third year I was offered a full-time job in the Cayman Islands based a little bit on the fact that I did some work previously in the Caribbean. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, the two and a bit years there were superb for my development. I was on my own. I was really out of my comfort zone at times, real, real challenging place to be. Um, in terms of culture, demographic, learning new things and, and learning how to handle myself as an individual and almost having a blank slate of, there wasn't really anything at the club that described the playing philosophy, way of acting culture. And that's a sort of, build that from the ground up for the men's side the, the children had nice philosophy the club was the, the, the badge or the tagline said the books and the ball you've got it all so it was really well structured towards 18 and below but then what does that look like for an adult team or a first team and, and that was us finding that and, and what we actually represented um, then I was fortunate enough to have a friend here at Volarena who offered me a part-time role um, decided it was time for me to grow again and, and take that comfort zone um, and really throw myself out of it and I came here and it, it, two years time you know after two and a bit years now I'm in a full-time role as the under 14 tech coach. Brilliant no, thank you for sharing and obviously you know you a range of different experiences we'll start by you know what were the biggest um, differences or what were the biggest things you picked up you mentioned it earlier regarding some of the playing aspects in, in terms of the types of types of more teams and the way the game was played in that respect but from a coaching perspective and a cultural perspective, what were the biggest things that you kind of stumbled upon going in, you know, stepping into the Caribbean? Yeah, yeah, that was um, a really big thing for me because, you know, I think the first thing to keep in mind is these players weren't professional in any way, shape or form. Um, the majority were fortunate to maybe get some perks from the owner um, and these perks could be potentially... Um, they could be getting a car paid for them. They could be getting, uh, they could be connected for work or something like that. So they, they weren't professional. So that meant that the demands I could put on them were only so much. So regarding um, playing time and things like that and training times, I had to be really, really forceful on when those training times were. And they weren't very professional with it because if they turned up late, so what? And then playing time wasn't that much affected because we only had so many players on the island. 
So it became a bit of a challenge in that regard. That was a real cultural challenge for me was the timekeeping. And then they didn't really care because they knew I needed to play them on a, on a Sunday regardless because we only had so many players available. That was an exciting challenge for me um, to sort of change that mindset and change that mentality. And that was kind of where I was coming from with the culture is under 18s, they have the culture of, okay, we're trying to create school players and we're trying to, uh, you know, school, uh, uh, sort of school scholastic athletes to be able to feed into the US system or potentially into the UK system, uh, into colleges and uh, universities. Whereas for us, it was, you know, what is our aim? What are we trying to achieve and, and what are we trying to get? Um, as a first team so that was the main challenge and then it was connecting with people that are completely different and from a completely different background to me um, that was really cool and I really enjoyed that to try and work out what really motivated Comanian and what really motivated Jamaican uh, we had Costa Rican we had all sorts of nationalities in there and and what do they identify with and almost trying to dumb myself down to be almost you know it's really dumb myself down to be agreeable those things and not be so harsh in my this is I'm, I'm English this is the way I do things this is what I've always known almost bring myself back and go well no what have they learned what do they do and how do I sort of attribute what I know into that and create something um, that combines the best of all our all our experiences and I think the final thing that was really difficult within the culture and that was a re the most rewarding thing would be the difference in the demographics we had we would have some uh, maybe a, a, an expatriate um, who'll be working on the island, um, who'll be earning six, seven figure salary, playing in the same team as, you know, an 18 year old kid who lives in a two bedroom shack. And then that was a great thing because the football was the leveler. And on the pitch, they were the same, regardless of their income and what they lived in away from the pitch. But then it was the challenge of, well, how do I get the correct nutrition, the correct uh, habits, the correct living arrangements for the player who's, you know, in a two-bed apartment with a two-bed shack, in effect, with his mum and his dad. You know, how do I get those things? And that that was really cool because then the richer, more affluent guys started taking responsibility for those less affluent guys and buying them things. And they would buy the Gatorades for the game and they'd buy the waters or they'd bring food to the game just in case one of them hadn't been able to eat. And that was... Um, that was a real special thing about the culture that I found towards the end was everyone was 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 buying in and, and supporting each other. Mm. Obviously, they know that you guys are talking about the Caribbean. Then obviously moving over to Gibraltar, you had a brief, yeah. brief time out there. What was that? What was that like? Yeah, that was that was probably in terms of actual cultural difference. That was really really challenging because the Gibraltarian players were, were very open, really good, um, wanted to help a lot, and really respected good coaching. Um, so when I was trying to do things they were really really receptive the English players because we had a few of those were again really hard working wanted to know all the details and ins and outs and then we had a contingent of Spanish players um, mm. and the reality was the Spanish players were very good but they were at a premium because to sign a Spanish player to take into the Gibraltarian league you have that it was some kind of homegrown rule how many homegrown players you had to have from Gibraltar so then the Spanish players could demand quite a lot based on the fact that we needed to get the best Spanish players in to fit those extra gaps we have away from the homegrown. And right. the same could, you could say for the Gibraltarian players, they could demand a lot more because the best Gibraltarian players needed to get the best take packet they could. So it was a real challenge to manage those Spanish players um, because they could kind of, they knew they were really good for that league. So they could not come to training. They could cancel at the last minute, all of those things. And then also there wasn't much English fluency. So I had to really lean on the Gibraltarian players to translate for me and support me in that regard. And I had to practice a lot of my Spanish. So that was that was a real challenge. Um, and we were between the, the two countries quite a lot, between Spain and Gibraltar, frequently when we're playing games, when we're training. And that would create the challenges of its own between the frontier because there was a lot of delays. And that would mean maybe the Gibraltarian players were unable to come because there was a two-hour delay at the border. So that would then mean... What, what, what do I do? You know, how do I translate and speak with the Spanish players? So they would, they would help me a lot. And when they weren't there, I would have to really be on it with my mm -hmm. Spanish and, and try and practice what I was, uh, what I've been learning during the day, even if it was very, very, very basic. Mm. That's a great point. Cause then I, I, it kind of resonates with me a little bit. I had an experience a couple of years ago 
not abroad, but over here where I had um, a group of players, kind of 18, kind of 21s. Um, but there was a diverse group of players in, in, in terms of they were all from all over the world. Uh, some that were from, you know, you name it, whatever country you think of from, you know, from France to Spain to uh, Algeria, all the way, you know, to Eritrea, to wherever you think, yeah. And what I found is that um, there were some of them that could speak English, some of them had, didn't have a clue what I was saying. So I had to kind of rely on other players, but then I thought to myself, hold on a second. What would I do if these players that are here now helping me do these, yeah, doing these sessions, helping me translate these messages weren't here? I'd, I'd be stuck. So it's interesting because what I actually started then doing off the back of that is actually um, I hired myself a tutor um, that could speak uh, Spanish and French because they were the most common languages amongst everyone. Um, and I basically said, right, here's some terms that I generally use. This is what they mean to me. Um, to give a bit more context to the students, right? I need you to help me translate these into these two languages with the sim with, with, with as close to context as possible. Um, so that 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 was actually quite a good, you know good experience for me, and that it, it, it does teach you in that respect the importance of being able to speak more than one language, especially if you have ambitions of working at a more elite level or in, in a more diverse environment. Because obviously, certainly, if you work, you're looking to work in the program at some point or the higher up you go, the more likely it is you're going to be, you know, finding players from different backgrounds, different, you know, different countries and different, you know, languages that they may speak. So, you know, I think in terms of being adaptable and versatile, I think that's, that's, a, that's a crucial thing for any coach listening to this. I would strongly urge that they do kind of do that. And obviously, for yourself, having gone through the experience in a slightly different way, I'm sure you can appreciate that as well. You know, so just kind of build, build on that then. I'm curious to know now, you're now in Norway. Um, mm. I'm probably gonna have to learn another language again. Um, mm. I'm, 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 you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the, the, some of the, some of the people over there do speak English fairly well. Very well, very well. Yeah. Um, now, what has been the major differences now going from those countries and now ending up in Norway? Yeah, I, I think the first thing would be the professionality that we have here. Um, it, it is far supreme to what I experienced in other countries. The facilities are of another level. They're, they're, they're superb. We have three full-size AstroTurf pitches on our training ground, a seven-a-side AstroTurf pitch. We have a fully uh, lit indoor 11-a-side pitch, you know, a stadium pitch, 11-a-side is, uh, you know, 3G as well. So whatever the, the weather, we have opportunities to train and we have, yeah. you know, the, the, the ability to do it with the undersoil heating as well. So we're very fortunate in that regard. And... I think that adds a level of professionality to what you're doing. And then it would be that the coaches that I work with from day to day, I work with some fantastic coaches and I learn a lot. And the ideas, the ideas that are thrown around the, the office are brilliant. And that's something that you can't really put value on at times when you're, and you don't realize the value of it, I, w I should say, when you're working alone, similar to what I did in, in the Cayman Islands, you know, you don't have, a real understanding of how important it is to bounce ideas off people and learn from other people and have those influences upon you and you grow as an individual based on well do I think that's right do I not think that's correct and that's been really good for me um I'd, I'd say yeah the language was a it was a big challenge for me when I first moved here I was doing four sessions a week with 11 and under so ch children that were 11 years old or under so I think sort of the critical age where they can start to speak English better than I can speak Norwegian is probably 10, 11. Um, it's probably where it comes. So I have to, if I'm coaching younger than that, that I did in those times, I had to really practice my Norwegian. Now I only work with the under 14s and um, they're, they're all fluent. There's a couple I have to speak Norwegian with in times if they don't quite get it, but the majority are fluent. Um, one thing that's really special about our team is there's, there's 32 players in it and I think there's only three or four that have two Norwegian parents. The right. rest are of uh, are second or third generation Norwegians. Um, so they, they come from a more immigrant-based background. So we have to be really, really clever in how we identify with each player because they have different backgrounds. They have different ways of being, different understandings that go on in their home. And that, that's a big challenge. You know, we have some kids whose parents are not disinterested but are very distant from them and that's just culturally the way it is and they kind of bring themselves up and they have different traits to the kid who is 
you know, from a very spoilt background or has a lot of attention. And we have to work out how that's going to be, you know, how we're going to level that out and talk to those kids in the same environment from session to session. That's a big challenge and one I really enjoy. You know, you have everything from our Bolivian central midfielder to our German, you know, number six to our, uh, we, we have a Thai striker. You know, we have a Moroccan striker. It's, it's a bit of everything. And it's it's really good to to be part of. That's fantastic, and I think that working with those diverse communities, I think you definitely can learn a lot about the way in which you maybe have to adapt your coaching, and you know, what are the most important aspects of your work to you as well. And I think it's something that you kind of you can kind of bend over backwards with a little bit and slip because of the because of the makeup of the players in front of you. So, kind of on that note, then I'm just curious to know then what are the fundamentals for you around your coaching philosophy and the way that you work. Yeah, it's demanding. I'm really demanding of the players, but I'll make sure that they're aware. It's because the first point is that I really care and I want them to be the best they can be. And it's my personality to be quite lively, energetic and, and demanding of the individual. So I'll always ask that they give their all in every session and we will really push that. And that will be, as I get a new team, as the 14th is, that'll be the first thing that I push is I demand of them a high level all the time, discipline, good behaviour, and they want to get the session going themselves. So then when I start to step away, it becomes intrinsic that they just do it. So now when we do, you know, a rondo, for example, a bit of fun, and they're really serious in how they do it and they want to do it really well. And then when the, you know, the exercise minute ends or however long, they know automatically collect the balls in. And they, they start to get those principles because they know, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to work hard and do well and have an efficient session, we need the balls. So they get the balls in and they, they start to have an idea of how a session works and how we train. Um, and then we start to link it to the game a little bit more um, as the session goes on. So yeah, I'd say that's the first thing um, we need to be aware of. And then the second thing we really work is on, on, on teamwork. So whichever level of player you are, whichever standard you are, you have a role within the team. That's extremely important. And we can't do it without, you know, the centre-backs. We can't do it without the wing-backs. They all have to be doing their job. The analogy we use is the F1 team. Uh, um, so we talk about Formula 1. If the mechanic, you know, we, I posed them the question before Christmas, who's the most important person in the Formula 1 team? And, yeah, but the driver, the mechanic, the engineer. The reality is if one person doesn't do their job right, the car doesn't go as quick as it can. And that was the way we made it sort of realistic for the kids. You know, if you're the mechanic and you don't do your job, maybe the, the driver who gets the headlines, which might be the striker, doesn't get the the service that he needs to do to his role. So we need to make sure that we're all working together and all of the cogs are turning at the correct time to get the car to go faster or to get the team to perform better. So we really work on that element quite a bit. And then we talk, you know, within the within the game itself, we are quite tactical. We start talking quite a lot about how we're going to use our tactics um, to beat an opposition, um, particularly when we're preparing for a game, but then also in a pre-season period, trying to nail down our, our fundamentals of how we want to play, what we're going to be really good at, how we're going to make that, you know, our identity and how we play, and then linking that back to the technical aspects that we need for each position, and then talking about physical after that. I think the main thing that encompasses all of it will be the social elements of the hard work, the teamwork, and, and almost the humility of, of being part of a group. No, thank you for that. No, I'm just curious now, then, where, where's that kind of, um, what's helped shape that philosophy? Obviously, you had you know, a brief playing uh, experience, obviously, growing up. You know, you've gone into coaching now, started to work around different uh, different parts of the world, and, you know, you now ended up in Norway, and you've had a bit of a, 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 you know, a, bit of a scenic route around, around your journey now. I'm curious to know how much of that has been influenced by some of those experiences going abroad, you know, being in the Caribbean, being in Gibraltar. Um, and then, you know, along that way, if there's any, if there's been any key individuals for you uh, that have maybe helped shape that way of working a little bit. Yeah. 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 I think, I think one of the main things for me there would, would be the experience in the Cayman Islands. The first year that we had, we had a very, it wasn't a strange team, but it was a bit disjointed. We had a bit of everything and everyone kind of had their own rules and way of being. So someone had an agreement that he'd only play games. Someone had an agreement he'd train once a week and all of those things. And it, it didn't really work. There needed to be a minimum level of commitment. Um, and we established that at, at, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. At least training twice a week out of the four sessions we provided. Um, three would be the optimum number to get yourself into the team, and four would be someone for, for someone that was extra eager. Um, and the, the guys really bought into it, and we would see the majority of the players two, if not three times a week. And it was difficult because they weren't professional, so we had to talk about the amateur nature of what we were doing as well, and understand that sometimes they're at work, but it was offering lots of different. Um, opportunities for them to come and train and sometimes we would even do them in the daytime for the guys who were in the restaurant industry and and so on so it was it was great not a one-size-fits-all method um, but creating sort of the flexibility for all players involved and then that linked into the next year that the second year when we started to move on those players who couldn't commit to that and they were leaving and it did no bad blood it they, they understood it was it was the correct thing to do the majority of the players who could live up to our demands were the younger players from 17 to sort of 23 and we wanted to have an addition to that of maybe three or four really experienced guys and one of the guys we signed was the top level you know striker in in the in the Cayman Islands he was the number nine for the national team just a fantastic player and um a really good character a hard worker wants to be you know he, he just had an um an ability to to change something on the pitch but then if things weren't going his way he would be a real pain on the pitch because he'd sulk and he'd walk around and he admitted himself he was a sulker at times and it was really powerful the way he was because when he was on it he dragged the team with him and when he wasn't the team came down and it came kind of came to a head when we played against the team um, that he came to us from and they beat us 1-0 and I remember it really clearly he threw his shirt on the floor um, before anyone else came into the dressing room and he was gone, he drove home. So we didn't have a chance to speak to him or anything. And really strange. I had a chat with him the next session and just said, look, what was that all about? And he said he was embarrassed. He was really down and he apologised to me. Um, And I kind of left it there. I didn't think a big thing of it. But the next game before we go out, I'm just kind of doing my team talk and I finish off. Anyone got anything to say? And he steps up and he goes, look, I've messed you around last time. I'm really sorry. I haven't been the leader I need to be. And I'm one of the older people in this room and that's really bad of me. Let's go out there and and smash them, sort of thing. And we went on and he scored um, one of the best goals I've seen and we won on penalties. Uh, But he scored in the 93rd minute, I think it was, for the equalise. And it was one of those moments where you sit back and you go, there's something here that we've got and it's been built on the fact that we've continually asked more of people by asking them two trains a week, three if you can, four if you want to. And then we started offering them more. And then he started realising, I need to offer more of myself. And he offered that vulnerability at that moment. And I think that brings it back now to where I am is, I was demanding and he found it hard and he had those sulky periods. But in the end, he looked at it and went, now this is the best thing for me and the team. And it really clicked into him. And I I kind of felt if it can click in for him, we can really make it happen for other people. So it kind of embedded, this is what we need to do. And don't veer from this approach and be consistent with the way you are because people will come along with you and understand why you're doing it in the end, even if at first they find it difficult. And that was probably the real experience, I would say, of working with someone that, that really hit home that I need to continue with the way I am and demanding methodology I use. I think that's fantastic. It's a great example, obviously, you know, how the environment that you've set has had a you know, direct or indirect impact on the players in that respect. And I guess it, it shifted their mindsets around what's actually important. Um, and I think that, that it's not easy to always have that sort of impact on players. And 
especially players who have maybe come with a bit of pedigree and a bit of ex- bit of experience behind them, it, it can be hard to kind of shift them outside of the mental space they're currently in and into a new one in, in that respect. So, you know, well done on that. You know, I'm just curious then, obviously, you know, you've you've now had a bit, like I said, you've taken a bit of a senior crew on your journey, um, taking yourself out of your comfort zone on many, many occasions. What, what's helped to keep you inspired and motivated to keep going? Um, and along that journey, you've also, you know, gone down the pathway of securing your coaching qualifications as well and you know, work your way up to the A license. Um, what was that like and you know how did that all come about as well? Yeah, I actually think they're linking quite nicely those those questions because the the qualifications has always been a motivator for me. Um, I'm quite admittedly externally motivated at times. I do like winning trophies. I do like things with my name on and the badge. It, it does get me going. It does make me excited. So finishing the A license um Recently with England, the English FA was a real achievement for me and I was really, really proud of it. Um, makes me feel really good. And yeah, they kind of link in as, as a motivating factor for me to get better. It's kind of a, a really important thing in my career, you know, it, but it is very, very vital that I get it. And it's kind of a little flag to stick mm-hmm. down to say at this age, I, I got it done and I had this, you know, I had this qualification. It's a nice little recognition of I'm, I'm going somewhere and I'm getting better. Um, it just gives you that confidence boost I guess um, but I think in reality if, if we bring it back to sort of reality away from those qualifications and the real life on the grass coaching experience the thing I live for most and the thing that keeps me motivated is probably two things the first one is the playing when you see a game come together and you go wow they're doing everything I've asked of them and they're doing it really well. And like, this is looking really sharp and really good. And you might see someone that you've coached to do something and you teach them. And then they almost find their own solution within that way that you've taught them. So you might have taught them to open, receive with an open body shape. We had a player receive with an open body shape and he took it one way with his open body shape and then spun back around and flicked it through the player's legs. who he's got directly marking him. And I love little bits like that because it makes you think, wow, like, I've given them the, the seed, almost like when I started coaching, I've given them the seed and then they've gone and found their own, their own way of doing things. And it make, it's a really good feeling to see them do those things and add their own context to the things you're teaching them. So I guess that'll be the first thing is, is seeing that performance come alive of what you've been working towards. And, and that's also the beauty of it is you don't get that every week. So yeah. you then have to work harder to get it again. And it almost pushes you that, that stick in you know, the carrot, which one are you going to get each week? And, you get some form of the carrot makes you go, yeah, that was great. I want to do it again. And then you get the stick the next week and go, crap, I want to feel it again. I want to feel that good bit. Um, And then I think if I, if I go to the second bit is that when I move to another place, there's a real six month, one year period where I'm so out of my comfort zone and I have to learn so much. And there's an adjustment period where I grow so much as an individual and all of my, values beliefs the way i work my coaching is really challenged Mm. and that i find to be the most valuable part of any of my journeys um so far is those initial periods where i have to really align myself and work out well what do i believe what do the people around me believe and how can i sort of amalgamate the two to bring them together Mm. to create a good mixture of, of and a successful mixture to bring us together and each time i do that I think that the window is going to get shorter. So I might be able to acclimatize in three months this time, but then the window actually gets longer because there's more things for me to consider because after the last time I realized I didn't consider that, I didn't consider that. So it actually goes on longer than the six months that you think it's a year, it's a year and a half. And then you go, right, I'm starting to get it now. Mm-hmm. And then maybe there's something else which makes you go, oh. and it's just consistently going out of those comfort zones. And then when I feel like, I've adjusted and I've got something new. I'm, you know, I'm motivated to see how it looks and, and mm-hmm. so much put it into place for a year and, and then see, you know, reflect again on how, how it's gone. No, no, definitely. I think it's interesting that you talk about, you know, and I think a lot of people maybe overlook these things sometimes, how when you are put into a new setting, there was, you know, you have to now use the experience you've had already to kind of reflect back and say, right, okay, what do I need to consider this time? Or do I need to consider this time that I might have not considered before? And I think that's very, very key. I um, just want to kind of bring you back to your A license. You talked about almost being like a, a, a flag, you know, a, a, to kind of hang on to. And so when did you do your A license? So I started it in April 2019. Yep. 
I can't get all the, the out of the, the years seem weird for me now. Yeah. April 2019, and I finished it last month in December. Okay, brilliant. So congratulations on that first thing. Thank you. Um, how did you find that journey? Um, obviously, the coach education pathway has changed massively over the last 10 years. I think more yeah. so in the last six, seven years as well. Um, and as you know, that's right through level one, two, three, and even obviously the, the, the A license itself as a level four qualification. How did you how did you find it? Was it what you expected before going onto it? Was it different to what you expected? And in, in, if so, in what ways was it, uh, I guess, either similar or, to, or different to what you expected? Yeah, uh, I think to add some context to it, when I was in the Cayman Islands, I couldn't do my UEFA due to the way it was blocked. So I, I couldn't afford six sets of $1,000 flights. It was too much for me. So I found another A license in New Zealand that I, I did as well. So I kind of had a, a background based on what I did in the New Zealand A license of kind of what to expect in the UEFA one. And they were very different. Um, the UEFA one, I expected to give me a way of coaching, almost a methodology or idea, and it, it was left very open to me. So we were given a lot of tasks and, and asked, what do we think of them? What's our interpretation? What's our understanding of them? And that you know, led me down a lot of things, particularly with the analysis tasks of where do I think this is going? What do I think of this? What's my opinion of it? And I started to build my own belief system based on what I was seeing and what I was given. Um, the, the, the practical side of it was quite good, but I don't feel it was as geared towards the practical side as, say, the B license or the level two. It was, it was, it was there, but there was a lot more based on, you know, your personality type. Who are you? What, what are you trying to achieve? Do your, um, do your actions align with your values? And, and do you have sort of congruency between what you want to do and what you actually do? Yeah. And how does that create the environment that you're trying to build? And then how do your practices and your exercises link into that? And does it con does it contextually look like almost like the perfect circle or are there holes in those circles? Are there little things that you need to tie back up and, 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 and work out how to get together? So a lot of those things sort of led to me really considering how I'm going to move forward and build that circle and how I'm going to remove those gaps or even find people as assistant coaches who can help me plug those gaps in my knowledge. Yeah, obviously, yeah, for me, I, I, I totally, I can totally uh, relate to what you're talking about there in terms of the A license. You know, I consider myself, I consider myself quite fortunate in some ways because I was able to go through some of the old coaches. It was a lot more practical focused and, uh, or at least technical, technically and tactically anyway. Um, and then obviously now where the pathway is kind of gone, it's kind of shifted to a bit more of a holistic approach, which I think is fantastic. But in, in some cases, you know, people would argue that maybe shifted too far away from technical tactical elements. Um, so I consider myself quite fortunate to be able to have a bit of exposure to kind of both elements of that pathway in, in, in terms of the old style and, and I guess the, mod, the modern day um, pathway. It, how in, in any ways, if they have, has that shaped the way you work now? Yeah, it makes me think a lot deeper into the whole level of what I'm doing, not just the X's and O's on the pitch and what I'm trying to create. So my evaluation and reflection skills are developed a lot more based on what I've learned from that experience. Um, and it's reinforced the level of expectation that I demand from myself and the players and how I can sort of mimic that in the way I am from day to day to mimic the demands that I want. So it's no good me demanding an absolute stack of the players on the pitch, but then me turning up with an A4 piece of paper with some scribbled notes on of what I'm doing for my session. That doesn't reflect my demanding staff of the players and the demands of what I give to myself. So I'll demand that if I'm going to do a session, I'll have maybe some accompanying video that I can show the players or in these moments with, with the way things are with coronavirus, I have to maybe send them videos via WhatsApp or you know, put them in the group of this is what we're going to try and achieve today. Um, so I add value to them in that regard so we can bring it all across. And, and that's my my challenge, I guess, is to is to try and make sure my lifestyle and the way I act is is pretty similar to what I demand from my players. Otherwise, it's it's not congruent again. I'm, I'm not living how I expect my players to live. Uh, definitely. I think that's a key point. Obviously, it's almost that, you know, practice what you preach element. Um, no, just to kind of take to take it moving forward a little bit now you know you've, you've worked in a range of different countries still currently abroad in terms of not working in, in your home home country seen probably so many different environments within that time frame what are some of the biggest bugbears for you when it comes to coaching obviously you've had some probably 
preconceived ideas of what it should look like before you've headed out and I guess started venturing abroad um, and having spent time in loads of different countries any consistent things that you've seen that you know what that, that, that just happened around the world and um, what, are, what are the th- biggest things that kind of get you frustrated in that respect? Ego coaching I think would be the first thing that I'd say um, and I was there I have no doubts in my mind that 18, 19, 20, I was an ego coach. And that's where if you win, it's because of you. And if you because it's lose, it's because of your players. Um, and they don't, and they're, they're just stupid. They don't understand what I'm saying to them. It's the players, they don't do this. And I think that takes a level of introspection and, and maturity to understand that as a coach. Really, if the players don't know what they should be doing or they're looking confused, it's a poor message that's gone across. So then you've got to work out how you're going to change that message to be more relatable to your players. Mm. So I think I see this quite a lot where I see a lot of blame and, and, and things attributed to individual people. And I don't think that's fair. I think we have to, as coaches, if they don't understand what we're saying, it's probably the worst thing we can say is they just didn't understand or they kept mm. making mistakes. But that looks really silly then because then you look like almost a bit of an inconsequential coach because you haven't had the effect that is desired as a coach. So you have to really introspectively look and work out how can I make the players understand me better? Mm. And I think that links into the ego element of I know it and I have all the answers. Whereas the reality of the situation is when you're off the pitch, you might be able to spot a few things, but the players will have a lot of answers as well. And you have to create a forum, an environment where they feel it's acceptable for them to say that they have issues or they think something or they have an idea based on something completely different. Mm. That is, um, that would say, I would say is one of my main bugbears um, about it. And then it would be an exercise or a session that hasn't got a plan. Mm. So people turn up and they just look at it and go, right, we're going to have these kinds today and then we'll do this and we'll do that. And then, yeah, like, okay, can you do something in between those two exercises? That frustrates me more than anything because then when you're demanding a lot of the kids, it looks really pants because you've not demanded a lot of yourself. And again, it's that congruency of what you're trying to achieve for your players based on what you're trying to achieve, you know, within your environment. And they have to align and be in the, in the correct way for it to almost be authentic and understanding. No, I can totally relate to that. You know, that one's probably one of my biggest frustrations as well is that when a coach puts on a practice or puts on a session and think to myself, right, what, what, where's this come from? What's your rationale for that? Why have you put that session together? Um, so, oh, yeah, I saw someone on Saturday do it. It looked really good. Yeah, but that was their players in that environment with that coach. Mm. It wasn't you. So why are you mm. doing it? <laughs> sort of thing, you know what I mean? It's just like, it, it, it does frustrate me as well. But, you know, it kind of just, you know, take you back to some of your experiences. Again, you, know, you, you talked there about, you know, previously one of the biggest challenges you've had is obviously going to different countries and get, taking yourself outside your comfort zone and learning new ways to work and the culture of the people around you and, and the environment around you. But beyond that, what would you say are one of the biggest challenges you've had within your coaching journey and how have you gone about dealing with that? Yeah, age has been a big thing. I'm being friends with my players. So I think a big challenge at university was I was very, very tight with a lot of the boys. Mm. and I was living with them at times. Um, I was spending nights out with them quite a bit. I was socialising a hell of a lot with them. But then on a on a Wednesday afternoon, I was the coach in the game, and I had to make a lot of decisions that would inevitably very much annoy them, um, particularly if I was subbing them or not starting them, and that would be quite a difficult one for me to balance. I'd find it very, very hard at times. But I think the one thing that I tried to do and this is where I kind of learned it was to be vulnerable and and say I'm going to make mistakes guys I'm going to mess up I'm not going to be perfect mm. um, and I need all of your support with this and I don't and I think I'm, one of my first sessions I produced a, like a hierarchy document like you would see when you go into a job interview of this is the manager and this is where people work underneath him and I put my name and then I put all the players name on the same line mm. And I was trying to make the statement of, you know, the physios on the same line, I'm on the same line, you're on the same line. We all have a job to do. And it doesn't mean I'm on top and you guys will follow my orders. It means that I'm part of this chain. I'm part of this environment, part of this team. But I just have a different role to a left back. I have a different role to a central midfielder, a different role to a striker. And 
for me to do my role correctly, I need you to do your role correctly. And for, you know, uh, and for the physio to do their role correctly, I need to do my role correctly. So there's not so many injuries and it all links into, into us working as a team. And, and that almost allowed us to really move forward because if I made a mistake, I was as culpable as the centre-back who'd missed the header and then the striker had gone through and scored. We were on the same page and we admitted our own mistakes. I never tried to kill anyone unless it was completely warranted. There was some stupid stuff that goes on at university football. But if there was anything like that, then I was within my rights to question their values and their beliefs and the way they acted. But if it was in a footballing sense, it was very difficult for me to question what they were doing because... I was one of their peers and I was just part of the team. So then again, it comes back to me. It's probably a lack of my good coaching and they don't quite understand what we're trying to achieve. So then I need to work on it a bit more. Mm. You know, kind of just talking about, you know, reflecting back on some of your experiences there, then I'm curious to know if you had the opportunity to go back, you know, you said 27 now, go back 11 years, taking your level one, knowing what you know now, and you know, having the experience you've had, what would be one message you'd want to kind of give yourself back then? Um, it was, I think it would be try and be more positive and don't get down on yourself when things don't go exactly right it's a long journey and it, it's quite surprising to me when I hear that and I, I don't really think about it much that I've been coaching for 11 years now um, you know I'm five years time I've been coaching for half my life and that's something that's quite odd for me it doesn't feel like I've done it as a job it's kind of an obsession it's something that I do every day I wake up and I'm thinking about what I can do better next time or what I need to do for the team and have ideas in my head of, of what the session looks like for tonight and then I'm going to draw it up mm. so I guess it would be that stay positive and and take your time a little bit but then I, I hear a lot of people saying be patient as a coach and all these things but I think sometimes you can be too patient yeah and I'm glad I never had that. I always had that drive to want to be better and want to do something new and, and challenge myself and take myself out of my comfort zone. And I'm really glad I did that, but I think it'd be more positive on myself because sometimes with that drive, when I didn't see the results I desired, I got down on myself a bit and wondered if I was any good. And, and, and I found it quite hard myself mentally because I just had so much, I demanded so much for myself. And when it didn't quite go how I wanted, I felt really down on it. So be more positive and see the, see the good that you're doing in, in from day to day and how that builds up to the, the long-term picture. Fantastic. You know, and obviously now, as we start to wind down, I've been checking, obviously currently sitting uh, as an under-14 coach in Valerango, Norway. Um, mm -hmm. Still relatively young in terms of a coach, um, especially within your coaching career. You know, 11 years, you know, for someone who's been doing it for 11 years, it might sound like a lot, but if you compare that in, you know, in contrast to, you know, what what real experience and what you know what depth of experience you could be on what you've got already continue to grow where do you take your journey next yeah i, I have a i have this question a lot myself yes um I, I wonder a lot about what the next step is or where i go and i always sometimes think about that six months to a year transition experience where i have to almost come up to the level of what is expected of me and then find out how I can put my spin on things mm. I think maybe if I come back to England I don't have a sharp experience as I would if I went to another country so I think there may be one more at least one more move for me to go and try another nation um, and uh, probably in Europe I'm quite happy in Europe now and I, I feel that the opportunities here are really good and they're really really um they're really really well developed I think would be the case in that you have clear understanding of what you're being brought in for to do whereas some of the other jobs particularly in the Caribbean for example or I, I didn't really have a clear idea of what I was meant to do I was put in as a football coach and then it was kind of build a program based on you and I think it would be good to go into a really well-defined program of what I want to do and and have that transition experience again of where I'm going to have to grow and learn but I'm in no rush to do it I'm quite happy at Volaranga. I'm quite happy with the challenge I'm, I'm facing here. You know, the under-14s, you play in a national league, so we've got some really good competition all over the country um, to, to, to have to play against and some very different playing styles, very different ways of, of working. We have lots of different foreign influences here. You know, our under-19 coach is Portuguese, and I've learned a hell of a lot from him, and he's been excellent for me. Um, 
you know, and and within our office itself. Last year we had a, a really good Venezuelan coach who I worked with quite heavily, who I learned a lot from. Um, obviously, a lot of Norwegian coaches, Dutch, um, German influence, Palestinian, Polish. We have any nation. Um, there's probably some representation within our club, and and that's something that I don't take for granted. So it's te- definitely not a bad place to develop here, and I'm developing a lot. But yeah, in the future, I think there's one more little adventure to be had. Fantastic, you know, and you know, just as we start to kind of you know really tail off, then it, if you had sixty seconds now. What would be some of the golden nuggets you'd want to share with your listeners and the viewers? I don't know if I'm qualified to say golden nuggets. I think this is part of where where where, where I go as a coach is that I only know so much and there's so much to learn. I think that will be the, the the golden nugget if I was going to say it is don't ever think you've achieved it because if you think that at that point then there's probably maybe there's only one percent you're missing out on. Maybe you are ninety nine percent, you know, towards the goal of where you want to go that that 1% can make your team better and can make them more complete and can make them more um, evolved into something that's going to be difficult for other teams to play against and going to help develop the players that you have in your team much better. So how can you consider that extra 1% each day and how are you going to achieve that and and how are you going to build those relationships so you get that extra 1% in terms of effort, in terms of hard work, in terms of teamwork? How are you going to motivate them from day to day? That will be the the golden nugget because that leads you towards long term success um, of thinking, and it's a constant revolution and a constant evolution of what you're going to do next. Um, that that would be the the golden nugget if I had one. Fantastic, you know, and just on the, uh, I guess, it probably ties into what you just said, really. But if there was one question that you'd want listeners and viewers to start asking themselves around the way they work, what would that be? Yeah, it would it would be where can you find those extra gains? Where can you find those extra places to to become better? And after a session, if something doesn't go right, and I think this links back to where I was before, why didn't the player understand it? Why didn't it go right? Where were the holes in the logic or the holes in the ideas that you had that led, led to that misunderstanding? And, and really, if you look into it at that point, you probably will find a couple of holes. And then you have to be honest with yourself and work out how you're going to plug those holes or if you have the knowledge to, to plug those gaps. If you don't, then then you've got to start asking other people and getting assistance or getting people that you trust and start fielding the questions to them. Mm-hmm. So it would be, if there's a misunderstanding from a player, work out why there is one, work out how you need to teach them differently or better um, and how you're going to find the 1% each day to, to keep that environment and that thing evolving and becoming better fantastic and jack just on a last note then obviously not just by having this conversation you know you've made yourself part of the coaches network so what's the message and uh or what yeah what's the message that you want to kind of be or the thing that you want to be known for as a coach or remember for shall we say yeah yeah if, if there's something that i remember for it's that people enjoy working with me and they don't see me as someone that's arrogant aloof you know ego orientated they see me as someone that comes to work with people and work alongside individuals to make them better and and really create an environment where people can grow and enjoy their football experience so they feel that every time they come to training they might grow as a footballer but they grow as an individual alongside that so everybody in the team that I coach I want to come away with those discipline, demanding, hard work, teamwork traits. So whatever happens come the end of the day, if they don't make it as footballers, they're going to be successful in whatever they do because they have those successful traits that are required to to be a good person in today's world. Excellent. Just on a final note, then, Jack, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation this morning and I'm sure the listeners and viewers have, have some bits too. Um if there's anyone that would want to get in touch with you off the back of the discussion that we've had or even to kind of inquire further beyond that, is there somewhere they can do that? Yeah, best place to get me is Twitter, um, at JackBraz29, J-A-C-K-B-R-A-Z-29. Um, yes, I'll probably tell you I'm pretty useless at replying on LinkedIn. I'm not very quick on that. I don't check it so often. Um, but Twitter is the place that I will respond a lot quicker. So I will check that every day a few times. So that's that's probably the best place if you want to ask me any questions or get in touch with me. Try Twitter. Fantastic. Well, Jack, thank you again for your time this morning. Really yeah. appreciate it. Have a great day, man. Thanks.
Cheers, pal. Thank you. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.